Yes, I'm definitely saying that you can be of a larger weight and metabolically you can be healthy. You do have this group of individuals who are completely overweight, eating completely out of control, but they boast about it. They are prideful about it and they don't even attempt to be healthy. You have major celebrities who, by the way, eat a plant-based diet, but it's all of this vegan junk food. That kind of washes out what it is you're trying to say here with the healthy at every size. If you have this person say, hey, it's good to be this way. Don't worry about anything else. Welcome to the exam room podcast brought to you by the physicians committee. Hi, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for giving the show a listen or a view or a download wherever it is in the world that you are. We appreciate the fact that you are here. It is a great debate on the show today. Is it possible? Actually possible to be healthy at any size. Whether you're 100 pounds, 200 pounds, 300 or 400 pounds, is it possible to be healthy? As a gentleman who has lost 280 pounds, this is one that I am wrestling with. And many people are also wrestling with this. But my guest today is going to help us look at this great debate in a new light. Help us see what she says we've been missing when having these arguments and trying to come to a consensus. For Dr. Yami, it's really not about weight at all. And she says that despite the fact that this is a conversation about a person's body size, we should not be talking about weight. But she also brings some other really great points to the table. And so on today's show, we are going to have that debate. Is it truly possible? to be overweight, to be any size, and to still be healthy? A lot of people get confused about whether or not you can be healthy at every size. Is that a myth or is there really something to that? We're going to talk about that right now with my next guest. She is a board certified pediatrician. She is a mother. She is a health coach and she is an author. She is very talented and very busy, quite clearly. Dr. Yami, welcome back to the exam room. Thank you so much for having me back. What a pleasure. The pleasure is all mine. And I sent you an email. I think it was probably late at night. I was thumbing through my Instagram and I came across one of your posts and I'm going to, I'm going to pull that up right now. And this was it. It said healthy at every size. And as somebody who was formerly massively obese, way overweight, I used to think that this notion of being healthy at any size was kind of a myth. As a matter of fact, Dr. Yami, I would go so far as to say that it was an excuse to continue an unhealthy lifestyle. But in this Instagram post, you really laid out a really good argument for why there actually is something to that. So I'm wondering from a doctor's point of view, talk to us about being healthy at any size. I want to have a robust conversation about this one. Yes, thank you so much, because I am so passionate about this right now. And the reason I'm so passionate about it is because I'm in the minority. So most health professionals, most physicians don't know about this concept and don't understand it this way. So I can understand why it's controversial and I can understand why it might ruffle a few feathers because it actually goes against what we usually talk about as health professionals. The way I define health at every size, which is actually a set of principles, and it's 
abbreviated HAES, H-A-E-S, we say HAES, health at every size. So the way I describe it is that it's the potential that each individual has to pursue the health and well-being that they desire independent of their body size, while also taking into account their privileges and their lived experiences. So there, it's a set of principles and there's a lot more that goes into it, but that's the way that I summarize it. And the reason that it's important is because health at every size applies to every person, regardless of their body size, whether they're lean or whether they're larger bodied. And the reason this is so important is because when we focus on body weight by itself, especially, we miss out on a lot of potential habits and behaviors that people can adopt that actually does improve their health over time when we're just isolating body weight independently. Mm. And, and okay, so here's what I will tell you, here's where I get stuck. Um, when I was overweight, I would literally view everything as kind of an excuse to continue to eat unhealthy food, right? I mean, any excuse, I famously talk about being on the radio working at WBIG FM here in Washington, DC and needing to be big Chuck. Well, that's my reason today to go through the drive through and continue to eat these 10,000 calories. And so when this notion of being healthy at every size first popped on my radar, I'm thinking this is just nothing but an excuse and it's okay to be proud of who you are. It's okay to be proud of your body type. That's all well and good, but you're really giving yourself an excuse here not to be healthy. And what you were talking about though, the thing that really popped for me was the privilege part of it. And maybe not necessarily having the means to invest in these high quality, organic, you know, all natural foods that people think that they need to eat in order to be healthy and to lose weight. And I was like, oh my God, now that was the first, the, the first kind of chink in the armor that I saw that was like, maybe there really is something to this. Yes. And the biggest misinterpretation of health at every size is that every person is healthy regardless of their size. That's not what health at every size is trying to say. Health at every size is trying to say that regardless of the size of your body, you can start doing things today that improves your health and well-being if you want it. Because I think that's the other part that we need to understand. Not everybody is even in a place in their life where they can fathom what well-being means, what they can fathom what health means. If they're working three jobs and like you said, they don't have access to these fresh foods, they don't even, that's not even in their radar. So we need to have an open perspective about that. But to start the conversation of, okay, regardless of your weight, you know, you said that you were a larger weight before, what things could you start doing then? Could you start eating more vegetables to feel better and tuning into your body? Do I even feel good? How am I sleeping? How's my digestion? Am I having heartburn? Am I irritable and depressed and anxious? Is that the well-being you want? Well, what things can you start doing today to pursue that well-being without focusing immediately on, well, in order to feel better, I need to lose 200 pounds? So I, I, I guess, you know, the interpretation as I'm understanding it now with, with the concept as you're presenting it is you do the best that you can given your current circumstances. Is that pretty much the, the basics here? Exactly. And to separate the weight from it, that weight is independent of these habits and behaviors. Because often what we do especially as healthcare providers, is we bring people into the office and say you come into the office at your former weight and you say, I can't sleep. Well, many healthcare providers are going to be like, well, you're too large. You probably have sleep apnea. Go lose 200 pounds and we'll get you to sleep better. But there's other things that you can do without having to focus on weight loss right off the bat that will help you sleep better. They're, they're, steps that you can take, habits and behaviors that you can include in your life. Some of those habits and behaviors might actually lead to weight loss, but the point isn't weight loss. The point is pursuing the health and well-being that you desire. 
Do you think though that even still, like if if you feel like you're doing the best that you can under the circumstances that you have, um, do you feel like not setting the bar as high as you possibly could prevents the person from being as healthy as they possibly can? Because I feel like that bar, you know, you can move it. You set goals for yourself. You get to one part in your healthy journey, and then you take that next step and you keep building upon that. My concern here is that if you set the bar only so high, you're never going to pass that bar and you're going to settle for where it is that you are. And you'll never find a way to overcome whatever the circumstances, whatever the challenges are that you're facing. So how do you then not use that as a crutch to not always strive to do a little bit better? Are you referring to a bar of weight? A bar of weight, a bar of health. I th I think for the lay person, I think it's really hard not to um, associate health with weight. I think that that's just exactly. kind of how is, we are in this yeah, country. This is why I'm so passionate about it, because I want us to start separating it. The bar can be, I want to sleep better. I want to sleep eight hours. I want it to be deep, restful sleep. Doctor, how can you help me do that? Let's talk about those things. Let's talk about sleep hygiene. Let's talk about the food you're eating. Let's talk about your exercise. Let's talk about your mindfulness practices. But what's happening, like I said before, is a doctor saying, go lose 200 pounds. Then you'll sleep better. Is that helping anybody? You know what I'm saying? Because a lot of people are going and they're going to do keto to try to lose 200 pounds, <laughs> or they're going to go get on some kind of um, weight loss drug, but they're not actually going to change their habits and behaviors. And as a certified lifestyle medicine physician, it's those habits and behaviors that are actually leading us to well-being and longevity, which is what I care about as a doctor, what I care about as a mother and what I care about as a health coach. Yeah, we all want to be lean and look like sexy cover models. I get it. That's part of our culture. But are we following the practices that actually help us feel good and live a long, healthy life? So that's my point is when we focus on the weight, we just forget about these practices because there's so many ways that we can lose weight. A lot of them are unhealthy and unsustainable. And during that process, we're not actually learning these habits and behaviors that are helpful, sustainable, and actually lead to true evidence-based well-being and longevity. So then I guess also what I'm gathering here is that your message, and I think that you said this flat out earlier um, or something close to it, is that you can have two people uh, who are 50 or more pounds overweight but one can in fact be a healthier individual than the other who is doing absolutely nothing to uh, improve their sleeping habits, their mindfulness, you know, taking care of themselves, a little relaxation. You can have two individuals of the same over, uh, you know, the same amount overweight, same high BMI, but one can be a little bit healthier than the other. That's right. Can I take it even a step further? Oh, take it as far you, as you want. You can have a person that is overweight. I'm saying this in air quotes because. Our definitions are debatable too, okay? So I'll just even put that out there. You can have a person that's technically according to our criteria, overweight, who follows all of these health practices, is exercising, is eating their fruits and vegetables, not smoking, sleeping, doing their mindfulness. And then a person who's lean, who's sedentary, smoking, drinking, doing all these things. And this overweight person metabolically is a lot healthier than the lean person. So yes, I'm definitely saying that you can be of a larger weight and metabolically you can be healthy, but even more important than that, you can have the well-being you desire. You can be happy, healthy, and live a long, healthy life. Well, let me ask you this. I mean, so this is uh, you, this is such a new concept for me, and I, I'm 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 trying really hard to to I like know, grapple I, I with it. I love it. I love it. This is um, great. I, you know, I, I just. I'm, I guess personally here, and I can't speak for anybody else, just personally, it's like that 420 pound version of myself is just like, no way you cannot be healthy at any size. And I think back to, you know, the, the various times that I would try to lose weight, like you brought up keto, keto wasn't around, or at least I didn't know about it 11 or 12 years ago when I was still overweight. But I do remember specifically being told that you needed to eat every two hours 
to, to lose weight, to keep that metabolism up, but nobody told you what the heck to eat. So you're like, Oh, hot damn. I can eat a burrito every two hours. And you know what? That is exactly what I did. That is exactly what I did when I was working at this Mexican restaurant. I would roll myself a child-sized burrito, eat that every two hours, and then roll out of there after my shift, go to Taco Bell. That's when I would get my $20 worth of Taco Bell oh on top of that. And so I'm, I'm hearing this, and I'm just like, golly, I just... I'm I'm just having a hard time with it. So keep keep working with me here. It's a process. It's a no, process, I, Dr. Yami. I totally Yami. understand. And I think another concept I think we need to be aware of is healthism and the shaming that we do of people that are in larger bodies and just realizing that shaming people for their practices or shaming people for the size of their bodies is not helping them. That's not motivating anybody to make changes. But I guess I would go back to whenever you were of that larger size and just ask you how you felt, like, did you tune into your body and were you feeling good? I mean, were you having any issues inside your body? So it's one of those things that you were not feeling that health and well-being, right? So no. even if we're not saying, okay, it's, it's the weight, it was your practices. Once you started changing your practices, because I imagine your lifestyle now is radically different than then, right? Just a little, just then, a little you did lose weight. And so, and I'm not, not saying that the goal was to lose weight, but because your habits and behaviors changed, your weight changed with it. Not everybody that adopts things like intuitive eating and tuning into their body and eating more whole plant foods, not everybody is going to lose weight. But many people, if they were emotionally eating, if they were eating lots of processed foods, you know, when they adopt those habits and behaviors for the purpose of well-being, not necessarily for the purpose of weight loss, they probably will lose weight, but not everybody will. So I think that's why this is important to me. And as a pediatrician, it's important to me because as a parent, children come in all different sizes. So there are some children that are so small and so petite. Health at every size applies to them too, because parents get comments from friends, families that, oh, you're, is your kid okay? What does the doctor say? Are they eating enough? Do you, you need to do something? And the kid is fine. They're eating plenty. They're happy. They're thriving. And then there's children who are naturally going to be larger bodied and the parents get criticism and they get worried about that too, even though the child is thriving and they're providing them with good, wholesome nutrition and a great lifestyle. So that's why this is very important from a pediatrician's perspective, come starting at the beginning of life, I want children to know that we all come in different sizes and that there's different practices, there's different habits and behaviors that we can adopt that are going to help us feel good and live long and healthy lives. And that's what's most important to me, to support these parents and support these little children. Yeah, you know, it's it's funny you hear, I hear you talk about that. And I think about my own father who uh, told me once that, uh, he was overweight as a kid, you know, and um, he, <laughs> my grandma put him on a freaking uh, diet pills when he was still in elementary school. He was, a, mm -hmm. he called it grade school, but it was elementary school. And um, there he was, you know, little, little Don Carroll um, on, on weight loss pills. Um, and she said, poor guy, uh, didn't exactly take, but um, it's, it's just interesting to me that there is that pressure to be healthy and to be a certain size at a young age. But I will tell you though, one of my other concerns is like, because this is such a, a new concept for so many people. And I think that, we, I mean, we're still hung up on, on weight and size because that's just the way that society has been, has been built here uh, for the last, you know, number of decades. My concern is when a parent hears, you know, that it is possible for a child to be larger, but still to be healthy, they're not immediately going to associate the fact that the larger child who is healthy is also more active and eating healthier and putting those healthier practices into play. Like you and I were talking about, they then may be like I was growing up or some millions and millions and millions of other kids, you know, going through the drive-through every single day and large because they're sedentary, they're playing video games, they're not getting exercise, but what they are getting is a whole lot of fast food. So how do you break through to those parents and help them understand that message? Because I think that that is really as critical as anything. 
Exactly. No, I agree 100% with you. And that's why I do want to change the conversation. Because right now, we're still in this pandemic. And I get Google alerts every single day because I have a Google alert set up with childhood obesity. And I would say there's at least five articles a day that I see come up with the alarmist titles, childhood obesity on the rise. It's getting worse. It's getting worse. It's getting worse. Ah, you know? And so when we're focused on this, this does not help parents. It actually leads them to feeling helpless. It might actually lead them to start restricting foods in their children, which guess what? Actually backfires and causes the opposite reaction when children are, you know, humans in general, when we have restriction, whether it's a true scarcity because we have food insecurity or whether it's a self-imposed scarcity uh, imposed by ourselves or by our family members. So instead of focusing on the weight, why don't we have more articles where we talk about how do we help parents you know, move more as a family? How do we help parents provide nutritious meals for their children and learn what is a nutritious meal? How do we help more parents provide more whole plant foods? And how do we emphasize the importance of sleep to families? So instead of focusing on weight, let's focus on these healthy principles, evidence-based lifestyle medicine that we know for sure is going to help these children feel better and live longer lives. Because when we focus on the weight, that message gets completely lost. Parents feel ashamed, parents feel helpless. And then they they may just be like, well, everybody in the family is large. That's just the way we're going to be. And we're just going to keep eating this fast food because that's just the way it's always been. So it's not necessarily helpful. Does that make sense? It, it does. It does. And I, I want to put a pin in this uh, for the time being, because we're going to come back. We're going to do a lot deeper dive on childhood obesity um, in, in just a little bit. Matter of fact, the lifelong ramifications that can come of an unhealthy child uh, childhood diet. Um, but I, I want to pivot here and, and go back to the adult portion of this. I think society, uh, you know, social media being the, the fun gem that it can be, uh, when, uh, you know, these big workout apparel companies began releasing, you know, like yoga pants, uh, jogging shirts, jogging pants, all of that stuff in plus sizes, three, four, five X. I think a lot of people who are fitness enthusiasts and consider themselves healthy began to roll their eyes a little bit. I didn't necessarily roll my eyes. I just thought like, here's another excuse. Here's another excuse. They've got workout gear in my size 4X. And if I can fit into say Nike's workout gear, then I'm automatically healthy, right? So I guess like that's just another notion that you you need to grapple with. Do you see plus size workout apparel as a positive or perhaps can you understand how somebody might view that and say, hey, they got the 4X, 4X is healthy now. I don't need to make any changes. I don't think that there's many people out there of larger bodied sizes assuming that they're healthy because they're being told all the time that they're unhealthy. In fact, studies show that 30% of women avoid going to the doctor because they know that they're going to be shamed for their weight. There is so much shame associated with body size right now. And it's a problem because it is inhibiting people from taking those steps to adopt healthy lifestyle habits and behaviors. So I think we should be inclusive as possible. I think that there should be workout gear that fits people because otherwise, how do we expect them to exercise? You know, like if we want people to move, we have to start where they are. So I think that that should definitely be available. And I don't think that we should make the assumption that if there's clothing, comfortable clothing available for somebody, that it's going to empower them to you know, be unhealthy. But even if they did, if we're judging people based upon their desire to be healthy or not, that's healthism. And again, that goes back to this whole thought of privilege and <laughs> all of this. So, yeah. you know, I think the most important thing is let's not worry about how people are going to interpret it. Let's do the thing that's evidence-based and leads to more people feeling good for longer. 
Yeah, and I worry that I'm coming across as a heel here, as a as a bad guy. You know, he's got his arrows out, and man, he is firing them a rapid fire. Um, that's that's not my goal here. I, I'm just you know trying to to understand what is a relatively new concept, and and hopefully helping others understand it as well. One of the other issues, as I see it, that may be challenging for the healthy at every size movement is you do have this group of individuals who are completely overweight, eating completely out of control, but they boast about it. They are prideful about it and they don't even attempt to be healthy. You have major celebrities who, by the way, eat a plant-based diet, but it's all of this vegan junk food. And um, they just, they put, I mean, do not leave a whole heck of a lot to the imagination. They're putting everything that they have out there. And then I worry then that if you have somebody who has that kind of stature, that kind of sat status uh, in the celebrity world has that much pull and they're putting a message out there. Well, it's okay to be, you know, 350 pounds, eat a completely unhealthy diet and still put everything out there. That kind of washes out what it is you're trying to say here with the healthy at every size. If you have this person say, hey, it's good to be this way. Don't worry about anything else. Do you see what I'm saying? How that can be a little bit confusing for people? Well, first of all, I want to say I'm glad you're asking these questions, Chuck. I, I don't think I think this is important because it means you're a very good podcaster because you're asking the same questions that everybody has. You're just being brave and courageous and asking them. So thank you for asking them. I know that people have these thoughts. So it's very important that we have this open communication and discuss it. As far as what people are doing at whatever weight they are, that's their business. And I don't think it washes out my message because I know that people come to me. I know that parents come to me because they do desire to be healthy. They do desire to raise their family in a healthy way. And they're going to trust me because I'm a credible source, board certified pediatrician, certified in lifestyle medicine. And I know what the research shows. So I don't think it, it washes out my message at all. And I feel like what happens sometimes with these people that are larger bodied and they develop this rebellious attitude is that they're tired of being shamed. And if we have some compassion and we have some empathy and we really evaluate where healthism is coming into our lives, especially in the plant-based community, I think that a lot of these people will start to calm down and evaluate their lives and decide if and how much of these practices they want to adopt in order to feel better. Because each in, each individual has to look inside themselves and evaluate, do I have the well-being I desire right now? Is there something I can do to get that well-being? And, you know, like I said, I think that some people, they, they're so tired of being shamed. They're so tired of being criticized that they're just like, you know what? I'm just going to be who I am. I don't care what you say anymore. They're probably not even tuning into their bodies. They're just feeling so hurt, you know? That's probably what I think is happening. Did you ever struggle with your weight? Because that is very insightful, what you just said. Absolutely. I mean, I am not a lean-bodied person. In fact, if you were to look at my BMI right now, I am not in the, quote, normal range, okay? And I grew up a chubby child. So, and I talk about this in my book, I started dieting when I was nine. And so it... And, and definitely part of me is rebellious. That's why I talk about health at every size. I have the courage to talk about this topic that is not popular and it's very controversial because I am sick of people being criticized for their choices and also being told that they have to be a certain way in order to achieve the health that, that they desire when in fact it ends up getting in the way of achieving the health that they desire. So yeah, it's very personal for me. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I, I could tell it's like, you're coming with as much passion from your side as I am from mine. I'm like, Ooh, wait a minute. She's bringing the heat right now. Okay. Um, but I'm, I'm glad that you're using this term healthism, um, I'll pivot here and, and, and talk about healthism overall in the, in the plant-based community. I think that, you know, again, there, there is this group of ultra, and I don't mean to turn anybody off because I'm sure a number of them do listen to the, to, to the exam room. And I'm very grateful that they are here. 
I just don't think that it's right that anybody be attacked if they are not the perfect vegan, you know, if they have a little bit of oil, you know, if they eat a little bit of that vegan cheese, you know, if they have that in their diet, that doesn't necessarily mean that they're going down south when they die. You know, they're still a good person. They, for them, are doing the best that they can. I don't like health elitism or, as you call it, healthism um, at all. Like that to me is heartbreaking. And I guess is also part of, again, why I just wrestle with, you know, like, where do you set the bar? You know, and, and I think, what I'm gathering now is that the bar is going to be a little bit different for everybody. Yes, yes, exactly. And maybe we should mind our own business a little bit more. There it <laughs> and, is. And whenever we're healthcare providers and, and healthcare practitioners and people in the wellness community, obviously we're speaking to a larger group and we know what the people that are coming to us want. So that's important. But what I think is a problem, and especially because in my book, I talk about setting a positive environment when it comes to body image and not being disparaging of yourself. Not necessarily you don't have to go through this whole like, I love every single aspect of my body thing, but more of respecting your own body, being more neutral about your body, being accepting of your body, those kinds of things. It also goes to how we talk about other people's bodies and how we talk about their health. So a lot of things that I see in the plant-based community are things like, oh, I can't believe he's eating that. He's going to have a heart attack, you know, and it automatically is putting blame on this person for their, their health. And that's a problem because we teach our children that too. We teach our children that we should think less of a person that makes a choice that might damage their health when that person may not have the resources available to make those choices, or they may not even have the mental, emotional capacity to get to that place. So I just ask for us to be a little bit more compassionate, to open our hearts, and to maybe say less of those comments, especially in front of our children, because we're just passing these ideas down to them. Absolutely, 100%. And I, I truly hope that nobody who's watching or listening to this today is getting any sort of impression that um, anybody is better than the other. I'm not arguing that. I don't care you know, how you view your health. If you want to be 400 pounds, you're happy being 400 pounds, and you don't want to do a daggone thing to improve your health, no problem. Do you, boo, like you are just as good as me or anybody else on this planet, just as good as you, Dr. Yami, it doesn't matter. Like, do you, you deserve as much respect as anybody else. You know, nobody is better than another. And I don't want anyone to come away from this show feeling like, oh, well, these guys are elitists. No, 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 no. Nothing could be further from the truth. Exactly. No. And I think that we know that the listeners of this podcast are people that are health conscious and that's the why they listen to this podcast. So probably most of the people listening do want to do things to improve their health and well-being and even more than the rest of society, you know? So there's nothing wrong with that. I just want us to be loving and compassionate to those that aren't there yet or may never get there. And let's kind of put a bow on this. And if somebody initially can only set the bar so high, you know, say that, you know, their, their first step is, well, uh, maybe all I can do, I, I have such limited access to fresh fruits and vegetables, but I can get that one time a week. And so that's the starting point. And I emphasize starting point. Okay. So that's the beginning of the healthy at every size. They start there. This movement though, is always also about trying to get a little bit better and a little bit better. So you start here and then you try to move that bar as high as you possibly can, correct? Right. Because as you get better, one of the principles of health at every size is intuitive eating as well. So as you start tuning into your body, so say you're back at that point where you're eating $20 a Taco Bell as your fourth or fifth meal of the day, you weren't feeling good. You start eating apples maybe once a day or a couple of times a week. And you're just like, actually, this feels better in my stomach than $20 a Taco Bell. And then you start making more of those choices little by little, you will improve, but you're using your own body. You're using your own intuition as that marker. You don't need to use an external source at that point. 
Uh, yeah, and oh my goodness, uh, boy, that twenty dollars worth of Taco Bell would tear my stomach up, man. And, but the funny thing, though, the interesting thing—this has nothing to do with nothing. But since you brought it up, when I would introduce those healthier foods into my diet when I was that overweight, uh, that would just—I would be doubled over sometimes in pain because that was such a foreign substance to what I was used to eating. Matter probably just because it had like natural fiber in it, you know. And I was like, wow, you know. Um, but yeah, that, that was interesting. Just eating an apple back in the day. Um, my goodness, that is just some amazing points. Uh, is there a website that people may want to check out to learn more about this An Instagram account? Yeah. So if they just put in Google health at every size, one of the top things that comes up is the association for size diversity and health. And then the creator of Health at Every Size, her name or their name is Lindo Bacon. And there's a book entitled Health at Every Size and several other books after that. So two other books that have come after that, that talk more about it and talk more about healthism and privilege and, and these principles. Let's go ahead and switch gears here on the conversation. Dr. Yami and I also had an opportunity to talk about childhood obesity and the eating habits that are developed in childhood. All of those trips through the drive-thru, the sugary cereals, the bacon, the lunch meat, the school lunches, all of it loaded with fat. Is a child really bulletproof when it comes to nutrition? Can they eat what they want and never pay a price? Are they immune to the dangers of an unhealthy diet? Are they immune to these chronic diseases? Or are they kind of playing credit with their health? As in buy unhealthy food now and pay for it later. Here's part two of my conversation with Dr. Yami. You have a book out, it's called A Parent's Guide to Intuitive Eating, How to Raise Kids Who Love to Eat Healthy. And I'm thinking, man, you know what? This is a great thing to talk about because we have, by and large, this belief as a society that we can eat whatever we want when we're young and never pay a penalty for it. I would contend, however, that you do pay a price. There's a hidden toll that you pay as you get older for those cheeseburgers and French fries and milkshakes that you would eat, you know, starting when you were five, six, seven years old, even younger sometimes. So as a, as a physician, as a pediatrician, I mean, let's just start with the true or false. The cheeseburger that you eat at three can really catch up with you when you're 33. Yes, exactly. If it becomes a habit for sure. And that's why I emphasize habits and behaviors. But I also want people to know, even though I am huge with the intuitive eating, definitely a supporter of health at every size, what we eat does matter. What we eat does matter when it comes to our well-being and our longevity. And the sooner that we can teach our children those health-promoting habits, the better. So that's why I wrote this book. I wrote this book because I want to support parents that are raising their children predominantly or completely plant-based, but also I want to help parents learn how to feed their children, how to establish these habits from the beginning so that it's just a it's a no brainer for the kids as they grow up, as they go off onto their own, they already are established with this really strong foundation of healthy habits. Admittedly, I don't have any kids, but I remember obviously being a child and just being bombarded with advertisements for every single junk food under the sun, right down to Ghostbusters was, was big when, uh, when I was growing up and they would have this, uh, ecto green high C that I'm sure was nothing but, you know, sugar and food coloring and corn syrup and just everything that is possibly bad for you was in there. And then of course, all of the happy meals and breakfast cereals and candy and you name it. I mean, you get bombarded with that and they're cartoon idols, they're sports heroes. Those are the people who are hawking this stuff for them. 
that's kind of hard to counter when you're trying to introduce the idea, the concept of healthy eating as a parent. How do you offset the the powerful marketing that goes behind junk food? Oh, I talk about this in my book. You have to avoid it as much as possible. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> and that's part of developing this healthy environment. What are you watching on TV? We know that during children's programming, they have so many advertisements and it changes their behavior. Even if you don't specifically buy those foods, it causes children to eat more. They're learning emotional eating. They're more likely to eat in front of the TV. And these are not habits that we want to teach our children for long, healthy lives. So trying to not participate in that, don't have the magazines out that talk about, you know, dieting and those kinds of things and, and what you talk about, what you bring into the house. At a certain point, your child does have to go out into society and we know what our culture is like. We know that there's fast food restaurants everywhere. There's a lot of celebratory events that we get together, that there's going to be lots of processed foods. But if you establish that good, healthy foundation at home and you support and encourage intuitive eating in your children, then you can trust their bodies to do the right thing when they go out to these places. And then you as a family, and I address this in my book, that every family kind of has to decide how they're going to approach these things, um, have to decide what your child is going to be allowed to do when they go to these events and how you're going to approach it. But the way that I do it with my family is that my children, they get to choose if they eat at these parties and, and those kinds of things. But we talk about intuitive eating. We talk about them tuning into their bodies and seeing how they feel. And sometimes they go overboard and I hear about it and, you know, they get tummy aches and whatever, but because I trusted them and they learned to trust themselves, they know how to approach it that next time they go to a party. How old were they when you brought up the idea of intuitive eating? I mean, that's a, that's a fancy word for a toddler. <laughs> right. And you don't talk to your kid about intuitive eating. It's more about trusting their hunger and satiety. But really, I didn't start introducing these concepts to my children till about five or six years ago, because before that I was probably overly restrictive because of my own dieting and body history. And so I had to go through my own journey with that. And it's really made a huge difference because I have two different kids that have very different food personality. It's called food approach. One that's a little bit more weary of food and maybe a little bit more selective, and one that he is going to be turning 16 this week and he's an athlete and he eats more than all of us put together. And so we, we have these two very different food personality types of in my children. And so as a mother practicing these intuitive eating practices has helped a lot because I am not pushing against what their bodies are telling them to do. 16. Are you ready for that? <laughs> He gets his driver's license this week. So I guess I'm just going to have him run a bunch of errands. I'm, I'm sure I'll feel better after yeah. I get him to drive around and get things for me. <laughs> yeah, for real. Right. Oh my goodness. Um, let's lay out, uh, well, let's talk about how difficult it can be if there aren't healthy eating habits established early in life. Right. So for the child who is brought up through the drive-thru, right. So McDonald's, Burger King, Taco Bell, KFC, those are their personal chefs. Mm -hmm. How difficult is it to break that habit as they get older into their teenage years and into early adulthood, you know, college and the first years after it, when they don't have the time, they don't have the resources, they really don't even have the money to do much cooking at home. How hard can it be, though, just to break that unhealthy eating habit? Well, it's never too late. It's never, ever too late. And so I don't want anybody to feel like they've missed the boat because they didn't introduce these habits early but it does make it harder. And when I hear from families that are struggling with transitioning their families to a plant-based diet or a healthier way of eating when they've been eating a bunch of processed foods, eating out a lot, eating fast food a lot, it becomes a little bit more difficult because your palate does get adjusted to these hyper palatable foods that are high in sugar and fat and salt. But it can be done. And I think that the way to do it is 
to really tune into the body, decide that it's something that's important to you and little by little start changing those foods over, especially if your child is still in the house, you want to implement and integrate these healthy foods, you can do it little by little. For those that have already gone off on their own to college and, and young adulthood, then they have to decide for themselves if and when they want to do it, but it definitely can be done. And let's talk about why it should be done, right? So we've we've used this generic term healthy uh, during this interview, but let's let's get into some specifics here and and lay out a scenario. What is the likeliest health outcome for somebody who is raised on that standard American diet, chock full of fast food and fried food, versus somebody who is brought up eating the more healthy diet? You know, much more restrictive when it comes to those types of foods. So you know, say that. Um, You've got two friends, roughly the same age, same activities in life. Take genetics out of the equation, right? Because you you just can't account for that when you got two different people. But you start eating this unhealthy diet versus a kid who's eating a healthy diet growing up. What are the likeliest health outcomes for the two? How are they going to differ? Well, chronic disease, which is something that's very important to me as a pediatrician, I feel like my job is to protect these children from a life of chronic disease. I mean, we don't want that. So heart disease, heart attacks, angina, strokes, and then diabetes, but even things that we traditionally don't associate with diet, like Alzheimer's and dementia and autoimmune diseases. So our risk goes up of all of these conditions when we're eating a diet that's high in saturated fat, high in sugar, high in salt, and you know, processed. So the more we can decrease those foods in our diets and increase our whole plant foods, high in fiber, high in antioxidants, then the less risk we're going to have of those chronic diseases. And do you think that it's too scary of a concept to talk about life expectancy based off of diet, uh, you know, for such a, a young person of a tender age? Like, when do you really start to introduce those types of concepts? Well, I mean, you could talk about it, but I just don't think it's relevant to them. You know, like my 11 year old, you know, we talk about longevity a lot. My, my poor kids, they get these talks like every single day of their life. So they could probably do my talks in their sleep. Yeah. But you're, but, you're a doctor, right? It's, it's to be not, expected. Yeah. It's not necessarily relevant to them when they're young, but what is relevant to them. And what I talk about in my book is that kids do want to feel good and they know what that means. Usually they know that they want to play. They know that they want to be with their friends. They want to do their sports. They want to do their activities. So they know what that feels like. And when I've done cooking classes for kids and I talk about the different foods and the benefits that they have, kids, they latch onto that so quickly, so much that the parents start complaining because they say, well, my child came home and they said that we need to change everything in the kitchen and we need to start buying more of this and less of this. You know, so kids usually, once they hear about these messages and how it can improve their health and how well they feel and the benefits of these different foods, they learn it very quickly and they're excited about it. So I think the more that we do talk to children about these concepts, the better. But sometimes some things like getting disease, they don't understand that. And it could be scary for some children. So I like to focus more on the benefits and how they're feeling. That reminds me of a conversation that I had with a friend of mine, not too terribly long ago. Um, the One of their siblings was in the hospital, had a heart attack. Um, and their kid was probably like eight, nine, 10 years old, somewhere in that ballpark. And it sat the kid down and was like, look, you know, we're going to see your uncle in the hospital. He may look a little bit scary, but then he's like, you know what? I'm just going to tell him why, you know, explain like why he's probably in the hospital. And he went right into, well, you know, uncle so-and-so did not eat the healthiest diet. Uncle so-and-so was a smoker. Uncle so-and-so enjoyed way too much beer. Um, and that is what put uncle so-and-so in the hospital. And so you're telling that to the kid at the young age. And I'm like, dag on, man, that's a little bit heavy. He's like, my kid really handled it so well. Do, do you think that parents kind of underestimate how much the child can grasp with those types of concepts? Maybe. And I think that there's ways that we can frame things that are more appropriate to each 
age level, you know? So I think that especially if there's a child that's very young, that just isn't going to get this at all, there's a way that we can explain it. And then the older children that are in elementary and junior high and high school, we can talk about how our habits and our behaviors do impact our health and our well-being. that it's a real thing. And to be cautious not to do it in a shaming way. You know, I think that's important too, not to shame the the poor victim of this chronic disease or heart attack or whatever happened to them, but to explain to the child, you know, some of this may be under your control. So think about some of the choices you make and, and how do you want your life to look? What's important to you? What are your values when it comes to health and well-being? And asking this for the parents who are listening and have young children, what do we know? What does the data show as far as when these types of diseases can start to present themselves in people? Because I've heard uh, the idea brought up on this show that, you know, heart disease clogged arteries. I mean, they can begin uh, pretty much out of the womb. What what have you heard as a pediatrician? (laughs) Actually, before then, there are studies that show that we can have fatty streaks as a fetus. Mm. And it's really interesting though. I've read some of these studies and it can depend on the maternal cholesterol level and the maternal diet, but they do tend to clear up before birth usually, which is good, but we're getting fatty streaks. I mean, the studies, there's some old studies that show that down to age 10, that they could see fatty streaks in the, in the aorta. And so this happens quickly. I mean, and it it's one of those things I don't want parents to feel helpless or feel like there's nothing that they can do because it's never, ever, ever too late. And just integrating more whole plant foods into the diet little by little is a great place to start if you feel like you can't make a big overhaul. But it it's true. I mean, it from the maternal diet, that baby growing in the womb, it makes a difference in how metabolically that child develops into an adult. And have you as a pediatrician seen any cases yourself of uh, a child who has heart disease? Well, children start having high cholesterol. So I guess when you think of like heart disease, you're usually thinking of heart attacks. I've never thankfully had a patient that had like an adult type myocardial infarction or anything like that. So that's good. But I have had patients that had high cholesterol, high blood pressure, type two diabetes, and I see patients from birth until 21 years of age. So this is something that can happen in children. All right. Let's, let's talk about, you You said, just start by introducing some fruits, some vegetables, some healthier fare into the diet. How much of a benefit is there really if you, you know, just introduce more fruits, more vegetables, just a, a few days a week versus not doing it at all? How much of a benefit does the child get? Really any increase in plant foods is better than none. <laughs> so you, you have to start somewhere. And the studies show, I mean, if you go to nutritionfacts.org and look at some of those uh, studies that Dr. Greger talks about, it really does make a difference even adding a little bit to your diet, but more is better. Same with exercise. A little is better than none and more is better than a little. So, but I, I just know that some families, they feel very overwhelmed. They don't know where to start. So just start with one meal, start with one day a week, but the more you can integrate those fruits, vegetables, whole grains, beans, nuts, and seeds into the diet, into every meal of every day, the better. And my dream come true for my patients that see me at my office is that they eat beans at least once a day, every single day. That makes me super happy. So I'm a bean pusher. I try to get them to eat more beans, but you know, for some people that may not be obtainable, they may be very intimidated by beans, not know how to make beans. So start with what you know, what fruits and vegetables do you like? What can you include in the diet? And how can you start integrating it into your family meals? I like it. Yeah. (laughs) You bean pusher. That's funny. (laughs) Um, uh, Let's kind of take this home here a little bit. And it's never too late. I think that this is also the, the important thing. Uh, glanced on this a little bit earlier, but it is never too late. Even though you know we do know that unhealthy eating habits as a child, you're not bulletproof. You know, you don't magically stop. You know, you, you don't have this bulletproof vest when it comes to your health at a young age. The toll just may come a few years down the line, but nonetheless, the toll comes. The damage is done, but. 
you can undo at least some of that damage and set yourself up for a far healthier future, even if you've really wrecked your childhood with all of those, you know, uh, just ridiculous high C drinks, the, the fast food, the potato chips, the hot dogs, all of that. You've really wrecked your health in that department. But when you get to your 20s and you're like, oh, oh man, I should really be doing better. You can undo a lot of that even your 30s or 40s, it's never too late, right? Exactly. Exactly. It's never too late. And for parents out there, the sooner you start, the better. So if you can start from pregnancy, great. But if it's already been a few years, start now. All right. And let's just end with this question, because I think this is one that a lot of parents wonder. It's like, how do I even get my kid to eat a fruit, a vegetable? You know, we've heard people suggest like, get them involved in growing a garden and they're going to want to eat their own food. But if that's not practical, how then do you get them excited about the idea of eating a carrot per se? My number one tip in this area, and I sound like a broken record and it probably sounds simple, but it's not always easy, is that the only way to get a child to learn to like more foods is through consistent and repeated exposure you have to expose them to those foods over and over and over again. And then the second part of that is that you also have to be a role model. So I know parents who themselves don't eat vegetables expect their kids to eat vegetables, but it just doesn't work that way. You have to set the example as well, and you have to keep cooking, you have to keep preparing, and you have to keep offering those fruits and vegetables. So be creative, find different ways to include them. And one of the techniques I love about presenting a variety of foods to children is to set up these kind of bar meals, like a potato bar, a taco bar, a salad bar, make your own pizza bar. You have all these beautiful, colorful ingredients all lined up. And then each child gets to come through and they add what ingredients they want to their meal. Technically, everybody's having the same meal, but every person kind of adjusts it to their preferences. Dr. Yami, are you insinuating that Brussels sprouts are an acquired taste? <laughs> I love Brussels sprouts. It's one of my favorites. But yes, everything is an acquired taste. Pretty much the only taste that we are born liking is breast milk. Everything else we have to learn to like. Interesting. I did not know that. That's fascinating. So you, I guess you have to learn to like those those greasy cheeseburgers, right? The first time you eat it, it's probably, you're going to be like, oh, what is this? But then you yeah. eat it again and you've got that taste for it. Perhaps. And we know that our processed foods, the thing that uh, is a little tricky is that there's scientists in a lab manipulating them so that we are guaranteed to like them <laughs> because, know. you know, there's companies that make money off of this. That's just part of their business model. Okay. So we have to understand that that's the reality of capitalism, but other foods like these leafy greens, they're naturally bitter. And for our children to learn to like them, they have to try them lots and lots of times. And so you can't give up and you can't assume that they don't like it. If one time they're like, yuck. Yeah. Yeah. I'll tell you pro tip. Uh, this worked with my nephews, uh, put some, uh, strawberries in with the spinach and let them eat it that way. Uh, a little bit of sweet to uh, chase the bitterness, man. And they will gobble that right down. Um, I was actually shocked. I mean, fresh strawberries on a bed of spinach and these kids were going at it like it was ice cream. I was just, love what it. is happening right now? <laughs> so, uh, yeah, like that, that was, that was pretty cool. Uh, the book is a parent's guide to intuitive eating, how to raise kids who love to eat healthy. Amen to that. Pick up your copy at dryami.com and if you're on the gram instagram give uh, dr yami a follow at the dr yami the one and only as a matter of fact <laughs> dr yami thank you so very much for your time today thank you so much for having me it was super fun a final thought now on this debate can you be healthy at any size it's not an easy question. And even though Dr. Yami brought some really great points to the table, here I am a number of days removed as I record this from having spoken with her. And I'm still wrestling with it. And I suspect that a lot of people will continue to wrestle with this one. 
because we do live in a society where weight has always come first in terms of health. They're synonymous with one another, interchangeable. Weight and health, you can't have one without the other. But she did make some very good points in that a person who is overweight but exercises, eats a little bit better, is going to be better off than the person who is not overweight but eats an exclusively junk food diet and sits on the couch and watches TV or plays video games all day. And so when you look at the question in those terms, the answer does kind of change. Is it possible to be healthy at any size? It makes you rethink things a little bit. But at the same time, speaking from experience, I fear that even somebody hearing this podcast or just reading the title, Healthy at Any Size, Doctor Says Yes, they're going to hear that and just assume that they don't need to do anything to achieve good health. They're going to assume that whatever it is that they are doing currently, all of those trips through the drive-thru, all of those bags of chips from the vending machine, all of those nights in front of the TV instead of going out for a walk, they're going to assume that that lifestyle is healthy and they are in fact healthy at any size. And that is their green light. That is their justification to keep going. So it's imperative for all of us to say, no, that's not how this works. That is not how this works at all. You need to work for your health. You need to work for your health. But it's so easy to continue to look for those excuses because it's so much easier not to change. And change, especially at the beginning, can be hard because you do have to put in work. It is hard work. But it's also the best work, the most rewarding work that a person can ever do in their life is to take better care of themselves and to prove to themselves that they do have it within them to have better health and yes, to lose weight. So maybe you've heard this episode and you're still wrestling with this and that is okay. That is okay. But it does help to look at that question. Can you be healthy at any size? in a new light. Good conversation today. Really enjoyed this. And I hope that you will get an opportunity to check out Dr. Yami's own podcast. We've put a link to that in the episode notes as well as all of her social media channels. And don't forget, coming up July 15th through 17th is the International Conference on Nutrition in Medicine, virtual this year once again, talking all things about health and wellness and nutrition and diet and planetary consequences. A lot more than just the great weight debate. We are going to be talking about the health overall of vegans and vegetarians versus those who eat the standard Western diet. We are going to be talking about the health benefits that come from having dogs. What boost does that give to your health? We're going to find out. We've got the science and the data to back it up. 
We've got the latest study comparing the vegan and Mediterranean diets in terms of weight loss. Which is best for that? That's our own internal study here at the Physicians Committee. Dr. Hanna Kaliofa will be speaking about that. And as you heard on the podcast last week, Dr. Columbus Batiste will be taking us into his kitchen for a little cooking demonstration. Cooking 101, the cardiologist taking us into the kitchen to show his tips, his tricks, his secrets for a heart-healthy diet. And for doctors and dietitians and nurses and health coaches, anyone who needs continuing education credits, they are available. More than 20 speakers this year, July 15th through 17th, and you can register right now. Reserve your space at pcrm.org ICNM and also see a list of speakers. And if you haven't already done so, please go ahead and subscribe to The Exam Room by the Physicians Committee on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, wherever shows are available. And when you do, please also leave that five-star rating because every new subscription and five-star rating helps get this information to those who need it the most so that they then can begin their own healthier journey. And that's going to do it for us today. I want to say thank you one more time to Dr. Yami for joining us. And for everyone here at the Physicians Committee, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for listening. And remember, stay safe, take a stand, and keep it plant-based.